Welcome to John Glenn College of Public Affairs Policy Brief, webcast series of informed conversations with policymakers and influencers and public sector professionals. My name is Trevor Brown. I'm Dean of the Glenn College and proud to be your host. And I'm pleased to be joined today uh, by Brian Pereira, Assistant Vice President for Government Relations at Ohio State University and a longtime expert of the state's budget. Um, having formerly served in the uh, in the state on the legislative staffing side. So Brian's kindly agreed to join us and talk all things budget in the state of Ohio. How you doing, Brian? Doing well. We, we are in difficult times in the state of Ohio financially. This can't be the first time this has ever happened. On, on your, your watch, many years, we won't ask you to count how many. Anything in your memory that's of the scale uh, of what we're we're facing right now? You know, in the very early 1990s, when I was a, a legislative aide type staffer, there was a very large recession that required the state uh, to do some tax increases, which were very unpopular at the time. So the state leaders at that point uh, included the tax and revenue fixes that they needed in a capital budget to sort of, as they put it at the time, uh, you know, make people have the choice of if they want their their capital projects, they needed to take the medicine of paying for state government as well. More recently than that, when uh, Ted Strickland was governor, there was a circumstance during his uh, first budget where the state of Ohio, I'm sorry, during his second budget in his his four-year term where the uh, state had declining revenues in a very bad set of economic circumstances that kept getting worse as the budget was being debated. And as the House and Senate had each passed their versions of the budget, a circumstance arose where the uh, budget management director at that point, uh, Director Perry Sabaty, announced that there was a $3.2 billion shortfall that needed to be erased between uh, June and July so that the state could put its two-year operating budget into place. And it was successfully done. But, you know, those are extremely challenging times for both governors and legislatures. While we're looking at a big number here, this is not unprecedented. Uh, maybe the number is, but the act of facing a big budget deficit is is not unheard of. So one of the things we, we want to do here is, um, uh, for you, this is old hand, you know this stuff so well, but m- many of us don't quite understand how the budget is organized and formed. So I, I want to spend a little bit of time here at the front end and just walk through, just give us a little bit of an education on what are the components of, of the budget and why are we on a biennial budget system here in Ohio? Sure. So just to get these out of the way, the, the state of Ohio actually has several budgets that it has to enact in its two-year general assembly that goes on. We're in the 133rd general assembly right now uh, with 2019 and 2020 being the years for that. Uh, The state has an operating budget, which is the one we want to talk about now, but there are other budgets that have to be passed, a workers' compensation budget for injured workers, a transportation budget that is largely funded by gas tax and license receipts and that type of thing, as well as federal money. There's a capital construction budget. There used to be a tobacco master settlement budget when the state was part of that agreement before it securitized the revenue. So all of those things have to go on in this two-year period. But what we're talking about is the state operating budget. And what happens is when a general assembly starts uh, in January of the year that it commences, 
it almost immediately needs to begin uh, discussing how to spend state revenues for the next two fiscal years. So the legislature and governor have from effectively the beginning of that calendar year until June 30th to get a budget in place for the next two fiscal years. State fiscal years run July 1st through June 30th. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, you have House and Senate members that are, many of whom are brand new and have gone from being teachers or farmers or doctors or lawyers or, or whatever they might be to having to deal with tens of billions of dollars of state appropriations within a few months of getting to the Capitol. It's a, it's a pretty impressive task for everyone involved. So you ask, two-year budget. Why is Ohio a two-year budget state? That's an interesting one. Um, NCSL, the National Conference of State Legislatures, every few years does a survey to ask, hey, states, why are you an annual or a biennial budget state? And everybody defends their own rationale for the most part. Ohio has been a two-year budget state for decades now. I am not aware of it having been an annual budget state. And, you know, there are a few arguments out there as to why, you know, what the pros and cons are. The pros uh, for the biennial budget, according to those that are advocates for it, is when you make two years worth of appropriations, programs have a better ability to plan ahead. They think they know, uh, you know, what their appropriation authority and spending levels are for a two-year period. Um, theoretically, it gives you more of a chance to do program evaluation and review as something, uh, you know, does not necessarily change that much in the two-year period. Also, you know, theoretically, it's, it's slightly less expensive to do because you don't have an annual process whereby the governor and general assembly need to do something. Now I will say annual budget states, and there are more of them. I think last count there were 31 states that do annual budgets and 19 that do biennial. Mm -hmm. uh, the annual budget states will say things change too, too rapidly for a biennial budget to remain in place. Ohio has many tools at its disposal. It can certainly pass budget corrections bills in the interim. The governor has some authority as is, you know, we'll talk about in a little while to do budget rescissions or cuts. And there's also in Ohio a state controlling board that's comprised of legislative and an executive branch member that can make midstream appropriation changes in limited circumstances. So just let's get some raw numbers out there. What's the scale of the budget on an annual basis? And then we double that. And, the, the you know, the, you would think this is a simple answer, but I'm, I'm going to I'll parse how it's all looked at and then what people normally talk about. The state of Ohio for fiscal year 20, the year that we will be in until July 1st of 2020, the state has an all-fund budget, which means all different sources, tax receipts and federal money and, you know, you buying a fishing license. All that stuff adds up to about $75 billion annually. The FY21 budget is about $77 billion. And again, that's everything. That's capital money. That's operating money from all different sources. The general revenue fund budget that is comprised principally of taxes like the state income tax, state sales and use tax, the cigarette tax, that sort of thing, as well as federal money for uh, the Medicaid program is about $34 billion in 20 and about $36 billion in 21. And I'll back up even further than that. If you want to talk about just state money, that is called state-only GRF, state-only general revenue fund. That's about $24 billion the first year and about $25 billion the second year. The difference there principally is you're pulling out the money that the federal government provides for the Medicaid program. Mm -hmm. However, when you pick up 
the newspaper or turn on the TV news or read whatever blog you read, the number that most people are talking about with the state budget is the everything that's included in the general revenue fund. So it's usually state tax receipts plus the federal money for Medicaid. So when, when you're talking to me about the budget that was enacted for this year, it's the 34 and $36 billion general revenue fund budget. Okay, so break that down a little bit for us. That was very helpful. Where does the money come from in the state of Ohio? Where are the principal sources of, of revenue? And then, so principal, again, will be, where yeah, does it principal come? sources, if, if we're talking about the general revenue fund that includes this federal money that I've mentioned, the federal government itself is now one of the principal funders of the state. And that comes as a matching uh, fund. Again, the, the federal government provides many federal dollars for all sorts of things, but for the state's general fund, it's mostly the state Medicaid program, and that's the health program that's uh, intended for uh, you know, income-based purposes, separate from the Medicare program that's done at the federal level for uh, you know, certain elderly people. So federal government provides a lot of money for the state's general fund. The next biggest source at this point is the state sales and use tax, then the state personal income tax. And in Ohio, the personal income tax also includes some business taxes. If you're a sole proprietorship or you're a limited liability partnership, uh, you likely pay the state income tax. There's a business tax called the um, commercial activity tax that also goes to the general revenue fund and things like cigarette tax and liquor gallonage and that sort of thing. So there's an array of, of sources that come in, but it's uh, you know mostly when you think of general revenue fund, it's state tax sources and federal money for Medicaid. So, okay, that's where the money comes from. Where does it go? What are the principal buckets that the money gets spent? Well, and, and this is another place where it is useful to sort of look at what the state's spending money on and what the state plus federal money for Medicaid is going towards. So let me walk you through, where does the money go for what we're, we're talking about, the, the general revenue fund? About 45, 47% of the budget goes to the Medicaid program. So the healthcare program, for uh, people that is income-based, about 24, 25% is K through 12 education. Uh, higher education gets maybe eight or 10% of that. Uh, the justice and corrections, which is the state's adult and youth services correctional facilities gets about 7% as well. Other healthcare, things like the Ohio Department of Health and Job and Family Services, things like that are maybe four or 5%. The state appropriates tax relief money, so that is you know, something that helps pay down residential real property bills is about 5%. General government, things like uh, you know, state agencies, small state agencies and that sort of thing are in there uh, for a very small percentage. And then you know, there's other education and debt service. So that's, that's kind of where the money goes. And you, know, you think about, okay, well, wow, you just said that the, the healthcare program is the biggest one for the state. Oftentimes, when people are talking about K through 12 education, they they want to look at just state dollars. So if you're looking at the pull out the federal money, K through 12 education still gets most of the state, or the, at least the highest percentage of state dollars. If you're just looking at state general revenue fund money, K through 12 is still about 33 percent of the budget, and then Medicaid falls to about 24 percent. So there's a flip. Uh, you know, so you may hear elected officials and others say. Medicaid is the biggest single program in the state budget. That's true when looking at the bigger general revenue fund number. And you will also hear the same people say that 
K through 12 education gets the single biggest slice of state dollars. And that is also true because of the way you look at that. Now, one, one thing I didn't hear in there is local governments. What's, what's the situation with the state support for localities across the state? So the state does do direct appropriations through a mechanism called the local government fund. That is not considered general revenue fund spending. So some of the state tax receipts that would otherwise be deposited into the general revenue fund go directly into a local government fund to be uh, you know, distributed through uh, county and, and municipality and township mechanisms. The other thing, of course, in Ohio that happens that is different than many other states is local governments in Ohio have a lot of re tax revenue sources on their own. And that's been you know, highlighted lately because of the recent decline in income tax receipts. Many Ohio cities and municipalities have the authority to uh, collect an income tax. And along with the federal and state governments, the local income tax collections are off. Counties in Ohio are allowed to collect a piggyback sales and use tax that is on top of the state rate. And most of these local political subdivisions are also uh, recipients of some form of real property tax. So townships, cities, and counties will get some share of your uh, property tax. If you're a homeowner or a business owner and you see the breakdown from your county auditor, you know where that goes. So there's budgeting 101 in Ohio. So now COVID hits. How, how has COVID's financial impact, how has that um, influenced where the money comes from for the state budget? So how is that influencing revenues? And then we're going to talk about how it's influenced what's likely going to result in cuts. Sure. So what has happened on the revenue side is very early on, before the state had taken any action, the federal government decided to change the tax filing deadline for annual filers from April 15th, the traditional tax deadline, to July 15th. Ohio is one of the states that has an income tax where our basis for our taxpayers is federal adjusted gross income. You really can't file taxes in Ohio without having filed your federal taxes in advance. So for those people that chose to take that extra, you know, several month period, what has happened is income tax revenue that the state of Ohio thought it was going to receive in, you know, fiscal year 20 before July 1st had a lump of quarterly filers as well as annual filers push their income tax liability into fiscal year 21, July 15th. So right off the bat, before you even looked at economic activity, the state had a timing problem where money was moved from FY20 to FY21. The other thing that happened with uh, you know, the stay-at-home orders and that sort of thing is sales and use tax for you know, commonly purchased tangible goods, uh, you know, for things people might go and buy at the store, as well as restaurant meals and things like that decline precipitously as well. So the state and the counties that have piggyback sales tax lost sales and use tax revenue. And of course, as we've now heard, uh, through people filing for unemployment claims through the state's Department of Job and Family Services, the employment hit has also taken a hit on the income tax. So in addition to the income tax having a timing problem, there are also folks who are now collecting unemployment insurance and are either temporarily or longer term unemployed that are not paying into the income tax. So that's, that's on the revenue side. None, none of that news is good. As you probably read uh, you know, from some sources, 
state sales of spiritus liquor and beer and wine, as well as tobacco products, seems to have gone up, but it is far and away not made up for the losses in the other sources. And, you know, one other thing that has gone on, of course, is the federal government passed a very large, uh, you know, stimulus is perhaps not the right word, but a bill to try to mitigate circumstances for state and local governments called the CARES Act that provided direct support to many uh, governmental entities, state and local, as well as uh, state institutions. And they also provided a supplemental uh, increase in the percentage share of the state Medicaid program as well. So federal revenue has been helpful, but again, has not offset the losses that governmental entities have accrued since this crisis began. So I know you can't give definitive numbers, but what's the size of the hole that we're, we're looking at in Ohio, both for well, fiscal year 20 and for fiscal year 21? In, in fiscal year 20, uh, Governor DeWine came out at the end of you know, the, the period where we would have known, had a good handle on what the April uh, tax revenues were. So in early May, Governor DeWine mentioned that the state had gone from having a revenue surplus going into the COVID-19 crisis of about $180, $200 million surplus to having uh, a negative number of about $775 million. So the swing there for just FY20 was very big. That's a big number. That, that is a big number. And, you know, roughly the same time that that shortfall was announced, the governor also announced, as he has authority to do under statute, uh, budget cuts that equaled roughly $780 million. So he went into the fiscal year 20 budget and made a lot of uh, appropriation, downward appropriation adjustments uh, to cover, you know, the, the year-to-date shortfall. He also made, and it wasn't reported as widely, but he made several hundred million dollars worth of reductions in non-general fund accounts as well. So he has ability perhaps to use some of that uh, non-general fund cash on hand to fix this problem. Uh, interestingly, he did not, at the time he made the FY20 cuts, go to the state's rainy day fund. Mm -hmm. I think he, uh, you know, he announced in a press conference he was reserving the $2.7 billion balance of the state's budget stabilization fund called the rainy day fund for trying to address fiscal year 21. At this point, we do not know what the fiscal year 21, uh, you know, shortfall will be, but I think we can expect as, you know, fiscal year 21 dawns on July 1st and shortly thereafter, uh, the governor's budget team will very likely announce their planned actions for keeping the budget in balance in that fiscal year as well. Before we get into some of the things like the rainy day fund uh, strategies and tactics, just what are the likely places where we are, we know where some cuts have already occurred in the FY20 period, but can we expect similar cuts in the FY21, similar reductions, even though we don't know yet how big the hole is? We, we don't know how big the hole is. I mean, some of the, the, the factors that the Office of Budget Management, the governor's budget people, as well as the governor's office and legislative leaders are going to have to think about is what flexibility has the federal government given the state to use in terms of the CARES Act dollars or any subsequent, uh, you know, appropriations that they might make at the federal level? You know, how, how are you allowed to spend those dollars? Um, you know, I think the other question that will come up besides the rainy day fund is just how big is the shortfall? You know, we, they, they will need to know what, what is the size of the problem they want to fix. But I do think, uh, you know, the likelihood for reductions will, it will look similar to how it looked in FY20, at least proportionally. The 
K through 12 budget was cut. Uh, higher education budget was reduced. There were Medicaid cuts to some of the managed care providers, but not to any of the uh, you know hospital doctor programs directly. And then there were various reductions to other state agencies to get to that you know 708, roughly 780 million dollars in reductions that were taken at that point. So you know they'll have to look at what what is the shortfall and where do they want to go at that point. Let's play you know budgeting um, the budgeting game here. What what are the tools at the state's disposal? Put put aside how big the hole is, and you've mentioned a couple. The rainy day fund is is obviously one, um, and then and your anecdote at the very beginning uh, about the, uh, uh, the the cataclysm in the '90s. You mentioned tax increases. Um, just just walk us through. If you're if you're the director of the Office of Budget Management, you're the governor. Uh, what tools do you have at your disposal? Well, and let's you know let's talk about uh, taxes and fees. I think it is very unlikely in the current climate that either the governor or the general assembly would want to do anything on the on the tax or fee front at this point. That just seems it seems unlikely. That's generally you know as you look at the ledger that's like a checkbook, trying to bring in more revenue would be one of those things. I don't think that that's likely. So if you if you assume that you know the elected officials and, and policymakers will not want to do something like income tax or sales tax or something like that, will they want to create an economic activity that otherwise isn't bringing in revenue? One of the examples of that right now is sports gaming. Eighteen states, as of you know, late May 2020, have enacted some level of sports gaming after the U.S. Supreme Court suggested it was legal back in 2018, and uh, there are bills pending in the General Assembly to do just that at this point. Uh, the state would not make a lot of money off of that, but certain fiscal estimates show it could be 15 to $20 million a year into state coffers, depending on how the money's allocated. You know, there are people who talk about legalization of other things, legalization of perhaps recreational controlled substances that are not currently allowable. Could you legalize and tax? Well, that's, you know, that's questionable. So I think anything that you would see on the, on the revenue side would likely be due to things that aren't currently being done. I don't think you would see a rate increase in this climate. Well, pause on that one for a minute. Let's, let's speculate a bit. I mean, there's historical precedent for this in the post-prohibition era. One of the reasons that, that we, we brought spirits back to, to the market, so to speak, was there was revenue there. Um, the, the state was willing to, you know, the state broadly was willing to sanction uh, that activity in order to generate revenue. Um, do you see that as a possibility here for um, the state of Ohio? Uh, you know, I think the state, uh, I, I think it, it would be a ways to go before the state would get there. There are also for states and, and cities that have done, for example, legalization of recreational marijuana. There is still a big concern that that has never been changed at the federal level and taken off of a, you know, a schedule of prohibited substances. So even if you were to do that, and again, I don't think the climate in Ohio is ready for that at this point, there would be a concern that the federal government would issue a sweeping order and disallow it, thereby negating the revenue that you might have collected from it. So it's a good question, but I, I don't see that happening at the moment. What about taxation of um, internet commerce? And, and it's interesting that you put gambling on sports activities. You're thinking about the pandemic period. There may not be very many sports activities to engage in or to bet on because 
they can't participate, whereas there's a whole lot of activity going on on the internet. Well, in, in technically, as a tax-paying citizen, uh, you are supposed to already remit sales and use tax to your state. That's where the use part comes in for internet sales. Um, I am sure I'm one of the seven people that actually fill that line out on my income tax form and mail it in. But the state of Ohio has actually been pretty aggressive in the last few years to try to uh, ensure that uh, the appropriate and due and payable amounts from internet commerce are being collected. The state's been kind of an ancillary member of a streamlined sales tax compact. They haven't been a member at the table, but they've been involved in that. And there's also been statute changes in the last few years to try to ensure that those who are supposed to be collecting sales and use tax for uh, online commerce are doing so. So the state's been trying to do that already. There's there's a, 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 an effort underway. And, you know, people need to understand that's not actually a tax increase. It's just a collection of taxes that are already due. Right. Two, two other ones. Um, why don't we just default? Why don't we just pursue the, the, uh, the approach of uh, state bankruptcy? Well, that would be... Uh, that would be a very poor choice for the state to enter. And, you know, the state has a history of fiscal responsibility, uh, regardless of administration, Republicans, Democrats, it doesn't matter. State leaders and legislative leaders have always been very cautious about the state's debt rating and bond service uh, payments being made in an appropriate fashion. If the state were to default on, uh, you know, state debt payments, it would have a ripple effect across many financial markets, and it would, you know, it would not be something that would serve the, the citizenry of the state well. The, the state has been served very well by the fiscal discipline of, uh, you know, governors, House speakers, and Senate presidents for many years, as well as the, the good work that Office of Budget Management does with, with debt coordination. So uh, that is definitely not on the table. One last one. Why don't we just print it? Let's just get the old printing press out and start pumping out bills. Well, you know, that's interesting. For people that have looked at what the federal government has done, uh, you know, to help this circumstance with unemployment payments and things like that, uh, you will note that they are permitted to deficit finance things. And, you know, some would say they are printing money. Others would say they are providing stimulus in a down economic time. I'll leave, uh, you know, that to to the listeners. But, um, the state of Ohio is required constitutionally to have a balanced budget. So we as, as Ohioans do not have a state authority to issue debt beyond a, a limited series of items that uh, have been approved in the Ohio Constitution by Ohio voters over the years. So, you know, if you were arcane enough to go into the Constitution and look at this, the state of Ohio has the authority to issue in total, $750,000 in casual debt, which, you know, that was written some time ago. But, uh, you know, the things that the state issues bonds for, like building projects and roads and things like that, voters have approved. And again, the, the state does a very effective job of managing that debt through, you know, pre-planned bond payments and that sort of thing. So the states in general do not have the authority to issue currency and, uh, you know, deficit finance in the way that uh, the federal government can. 49 of the 50 states have either a statutory or a constitutional mandate to have a balanced budget. Vermont is the one that doesn't, in case you're wondering. 
I'm always impressed with your encyclopedic knowledge <laughs> of state government, Brian. So just to summarize, you know, it sounds like the, the feasible options here are rescissions, cuts um, in, in the budget, um, some point tapping of the rainy day fund, uh, and or generating new economic activity uh, that would stimulate uh, revenue growth and potentially taxing new forms of revenue generation that are at this moment untaxed. That's our, that's our choice set. I think so. And, you know, again, if, if the federal government decides to do something else, you know, so be it, but you, you can't count on that. And again, you know, I think um, the, the options that are out there, as complex and complicated as state budgetary issues are, it really is like a checkbook. You know, you have sources that come into it on the revenue side, and you have things that go out on the appropriations side, and you just you need to make your choices within those those universes. What can you get a governor to propose and a legislature to enact? Well, I'm not I'm not going to make you prognosticate on 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 what this budget's going to look like, but I I do want you to to look into the future here to close our conversation. And first. You know, COVID came out of nowhere in a sense, um, and and it's downstream very quickly. Its fiscal impacts were felt um, in very short order. Is this just a blip? Is this just a really, um, really severe, sharp hit, or is this something more structural that that we're going to be living with for some time on the fiscal front? Well, you know, the the initial question that we have to wrestle with here is, you know, was the the spiking of those who have this virus in, you know, the April month, is that going to be it? Or are we going to have what we saw in, you know, we, we've now learned from 1918 where there was kind of a double, double whammy with the influenza pandemic that occurred back then. Uh, you know, I think regardless of what goes on with continued social distancing and, and that sort of thing, the employment market is going to be something to watch. We need to see how quickly can the businesses that were, either shuttered or had reduced services able to ramp back up because the employment picture is extremely important to the revenues for the state and local governments. You know, the tax receipts that people will be paying in uh, income tax as well as sales and use taxes based on their ability to have an income and have, you know, money that is disposable for them to, to go use on goods and services. So part of the question is how quickly will the employment circumstance rebound? And I think the other question is going to be, are people going to return to the habits that they had prior to this? You know, we've, we've heard people say, you know, maybe a return to normalcy isn't a good thing. You know, we've gotten to a place where people are comfortable now having dinners in their homes and apartments with, with family and loved ones in the way they didn't before. Does that mean that the, the restaurant and, uh, you know, hospitality industry is going to see a longer term effect of this? People are, uh, you know, making do in other ways. That that's going to be interesting. H have our behaviors changed, you know, in a long-term way? I mean, I'll give you an example from our house. I don't think we're ever going to go back to buying paper towels again. My wife decided we were going to be using reusable cloth towels made in the U.S. And if I even dare look at that paper towel that's still over on the holder, I get, you know, a scowl. So. You know, you tell me, have, have you changed? You think you're going to be a little bit different coming out the other side of this? I'm, I'm standing in a closet right now talking to you. 
Um, so yes, my, my life has changed. The behaviors uh, are different. But to that end, that's their final question. So yeah, there's a big question mark around behavior change. And, and then uh, is there revenue generation that can occur off of it? Um, so given that uncertainty, what, what would you say are the most important steps that the state needs to take right now to prepare, to, to sort of manage and, and, and navigate that, that uncertainty on the fiscal front? I think we, we already have state leaders that are conservative budgetarily. You know, I think that there was, uh, every time you pass a budget, those that didn't get what they wanted funded are dismayed, and those that got what they wanted are few and far between. But I think that there will be an, an added focus on conservative revenue estimation. I think there will be an added focus on appropriations being kept to the you know, the minimum levels they can be kept at for services to continue to be provided. And an already fiscally conservative state will actually get a little more conservative in terms of finances. And, you know, as yeah. citizens, that's, that's probably something that, you know, we all understand, especially folks that have, you know, lost employment opportunities in the last several months. I think they'll, they'll look at the state and local governments and say, you need to do the, the same belt tightening that uh, we have done out here, courtesy of this virus that has come through. Brian, thanks for that informative education. This was, this was great. I know we went, we went down thick into the budget, but, but I think it's really important for all of us to understand all the different moving parts and pieces. And you've done a great job of, of educating uh, us about this. And now I know what to get you for your birthday. You'll be getting your own towel just yours. Oh, there you go. Just for you. Just make sure it's made in the U.S. and I'll be, be fine. Policy Brief is produced by the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University.